Good morning, Christchurch. Um, I'm really impressed how many of you are here, made it through the whole marathon thing, must have done some homework figuring out your route. Um, today's gospel reading is one that um, you might have heard a common thread. It's one of the most like cohesive uh, lectionary days of the year. It's just so clear. You see this moment in Exodus, Moses at the mountaintop, and then we have the transfiguration moment with Jesus, and then the Peter's remembering the transfiguration in his passage. Um, this has become personally, this passage, one of my favorite texts, one, one of the most meaningful, personally meaningful texts to me, and I'll tell you a bit about that in a while. But first, I want to look at how this gospel story of Jesus going up onto the mountain and the transfiguration that takes Blair, this, this gospel story connects to other parts of Scripture. And then we're going to look at how the transfiguration does a few things for us. It changes the way we see Jesus. It changes the way we see the world. It changes the way we see ourselves. Uh, but let's first look at its connection to other texts of Scripture and stories of the Scripture. Think of it this way. You get up to the mountaintop and the transfiguration, and from there, you get this like prospect on the rest of the Bible. You can kind of look in one direction in the Old Testament, look forward in another, and you get this, this kind of perspective that it gives you, this text gives you on the whole Bible. Let's begin with this one. Really amazing parallels that you find when you put this text up against the baptism of Jesus. Matthew tells both stories, and there's incredible parallels. Um, the baptism begins a movement of the gospel, a movement of the ministry of Jesus. In Matthew, from the baptism forward, everything that follows is going to be Jesus' ministry into Galilee. And then you get to this pause, and you get the transfiguration, and that is like now another movement. And from the transfiguration on, it's a movement towards Jerusalem and the cross. So these two hinges, baptism kind of launches him into Galilee and his ministry, the transfiguration, this hinge launches him towards Jerusalem and the passion. And in fact, that's why it is placed on this Sunday right before we enter Lent, right before we enter this season of walking through the passion of Jesus over the weeks to come. Another parallel that you see, God bears testimony to his son in both of these scenes. God the Father bears witness to who this is, testimony, before, in both cases, you have an audience of a few people. Both of these are preceded with a question about uh, an exploration of, of Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? And that gets addressed in both of these texts. So in the first one, in baptism, John the Baptist is there in this exchange, and there's this moment of recognition and identification of who Jesus is. And John the Baptist declares it when he finally says, oh, you, wait, you should be in here. We should reverse this. You should be doing this to me. Am I to do this to you? And, and Jesus says, yes, you are to baptize me. And we realize who Jesus is in this exchange. John the Baptist has this kind of encounter. And then directly, explicitly, right before the transfiguration is a moment when Jesus says to disciples, who do you say that I am? This moment of identification again, and Peter says, you are the Messiah. And he rightly identifies Jesus. 
So in both cases, these stories, they're framed with statements about Jesus' identity. They both launch a season of, or a movement within the gospel of Matthew. Another thing that we see in both of these is this voice from heaven that identifies who Jesus is. In baptism, here's what is said. The voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What do we hear at the transfiguration? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And listen to him. There's a little add-on in this one. So we know as readers that whatever happens next happens with an understanding of who this is. All the healings that are going to happen as he goes into Galilee. All the miracles, all the casting out of demons and proclaiming of the kingdom of God that it is here. All of that, we know who it is who's making these declarations and who is demonstrating this gospel. And then we know that after the transfiguration, everything that happens, we know who this is who's going to be arrested and tortured, crucified, buried, and rise from the dead. We know that this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God in whom the Father is well pleased. Both the baptism and the transfiguration have a privileged kind of small audience. Another parallel. Both have an appearance or an opening of the heavens with this miraculous demonstration of the glory of God as the heavens open up. So that's one story. You can see this parallel, right? All right, let's look at another one, another parallel. The transfiguration and Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus. And that, we read that story in our first reading. In both of these, we see a mountaintop. We see the glory of God revealed. We see the reference to this kind of face that shines with the glory of God. However, Moses can't look upon the face of God. God kind of has his, keeps his back to him because it's too, it shines too bright, too glorious, too holy. Moses cannot see God face to face. But the glory is shining forth in this moment. We also see the glory of God in this moment of the gospel and the transfiguration. We see the glory of God revealed to the disciples. This time, however, how do the disciples encounter it? They encounter it face to face. They encounter the glory of God. Now, through Jesus, they can encounter the very awesome, holy glory of God shining straight, and they can see him face to face in the person of Jesus. Moses was given instructions on the mountaintop for a tabernacle. And here's another parallel. God said to Moses, I want to be among you. I am a kind of God who will dwell right there in the midst of you, among you as the people. Build this kind of tabernacle, and I will dwell. And wherever you go, set up this tent, this tabernacle, and I will dwell and travel with you through the wilderness. I am the God who's with you. And then what do we have here in Mount Sinai? I mean, uh, in the transfiguration, we have Peter saying, Jesus, you want me to build some tents? And Jesus says, no. Why not? Because Jesus is the tent. Jesus is the tabernacle. In fact, John 1 says that he came among us and uses the word he tabernacled among us. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. His own person. No tents. Me, he says. 
I'm the dwelling place of God. So these two are related to each other. You might have picked this up, this little detail. Actually, in my prep for the sermon, I didn't catch this. And as we were reading, I noticed that in Mount Sinai with Moses, it says that there were six days of that cloud. And then on the seventh day, God appeared. In the transfiguration, it says that this moment follows, again, after six days, it says explicitly, they went to the mountaintop and there's this appearing of the glory of God. These kind of things, as we read the Bible, these are not coincidental. These are not accidental. This is Matthew giving us the gospel as a continuation of this long story of what, it, what has been at play all along and tying the thread for us. This Jesus is going to lead a new exodus. He's going to lead people, not just one particular people called the Jewish people, out of slavery. He's going to lead all nations out of bondage, out of slavery, into freedom. This is a new exodus. Jesus, a new Moses, but this is actually God himself. There's another way that this scene from the mountaintop gives a unique vantage point on the rest of Scripture. There are, throughout the Bible, a number of visions of God that we get, that where, where he reveals himself to a person or to a people, and this is another in a thread of these kind of stories. They're sometimes called theophanies, these moments when God appears to his people or to an individual. Things like Abraham and Sarah, when they were sitting under the oaks of Mamre, and, and there's this visitation, this kind of divine encounter that they have with these three. Moses at the burning bush. There's the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led them through the night and day throughout the desert. It's the very presence of God among them. Moses at the exodus, at the exodus seizes God's presence in his face shining, what we just saw here. Then we have Solomon builds the temple and the, the Shekinah glory of God comes down upon the temple that Solomon has built and the presence of God the glory of God is made known. The vision of Isaiah 6, we see that. Ezekiel, in his 30th year, he sees the heavens opened up and a vision of God. So there are these moments, and this is another one, where God makes himself known, reveals himself to a group of people, and this time in the person of Jesus Christ. But there's something different about this one. So I want to look at now the ways that the transfiguration changes how we see Jesus. You can follow me up on these. We're going to have them on the screen. You can follow one at a time. First of all, the transfiguration changes how we see Jesus. Moses sees the back of God. Remember my reference to that? Moses' face shines reflecting that glory. So we, we get that description of Moses. If you looked at Moses, you would see this reflected Moses, glory on Moses. I had a friend uh, who once had an email address that was MosesFace at, you know, whatever.com. And it was an expression of, I want to be, I want the, I want the shining glory of God upon me. I want to be, I want to be Moses face all the time. So that was their email address. But what do the disciples see in the case of Christ? Is it a reflected glory? Is the, is the glory of God shining upon Jesus so there's kind of this reflected glory upon the disciples? No, that's not what's happening. The glory of God is shining from Jesus. 
It's not a reflected glory. He himself, the glory of the living God, belongs to Jesus himself, and he is shining the glory of God in this moment on the mountaintop. This also identifies who it is we're talking about in the person of Jesus, the very glory of God coming from him. Look at verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. While other theophanies or God appearances do not reveal the face of God, now, in Christ, in the face of Jesus, they see the shining face of the glory of God himself. Now they see a glory that belongs to Jesus. Before he goes to the cross, they know who's going to the cross They see him as the glorious one, the great high priest in his heavenly robes. They know now this is not just some rabbi who's wise. This is not just a carpenter from Nazareth. A revelation has occurred that they can never look back or unsee. This is what is different about the vision of God. They see God's glory face to face this time. How we see Jesus, how the disciples saw him is also changed by the Father's testimony, the Father's bearing witness to Jesus. Let's read on. Verse 5 here, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the clouds said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The glory of God, not just shining upon, but from within. This is the glory of God in humanity in the person of Jesus. Not the glory of God upon humanity. This is the glory of God in humanity. Heaven and earth are one in this person. This is just kind of mind-blowing when you think about Jesus being truly human, made of the stuff that you and I are made of, the bones, the flesh, the nervous system, everything. This human, heaven comes and crashes and collides, and heaven and earth are one right here in the person of Jesus. Jesus is a microcosm of the whole cosmos. That word microcosm just means cosmos, everything, everything that is the cosmos in miniature. Right here in Jesus, Jesus is a microcosm, and right here in this, G- in this person, heaven and earth have fully come together. The glory of God that fills the heavens, fills the earth now through the person of Jesus. Jesus being fully human, flesh and blood, draws into himself all creation. And the heavens are opened up and poured out upon the earth. All the glory of God in the heavens. So all the earth here in Jesus representing creation. And the heavens, all the glory of God merging right here in this person. The transfiguration changes how we see Jesus. It also, second thing, changes how we see the world. We look at the world around us in a different way. Peter sees the world differently at this moment. The mountaintop they are now on suddenly It's not just a mountaintop. It is a temple of the Lord. Peter recognizes that. Let's get some tents built. (laughs) 
This is a temple. The glory of the God of the Lord is here. This mountaintop is not just a mountaintop. It's a temple. Verse 4, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And of course, as we mentioned, Peter's talking about tents, but a reference to tabernacle. The transfiguration changes how we see the world. Suddenly, the whole world is full of the glory of God. The whole world, as heaven and earth come together in the person of Jesus, the whole world becomes like a sacrament. A sacrament is, a way, is something through which we see, get glimpses of God. It's not God itself. It's a glimpse into who God is and his glory. This is what we call sometimes a sacramental vision of the world, a way of seeing the world through Jesus where heaven and earth have come together in, in him and suddenly everything becomes, in a sense, sacralized, consecrated, holy. This quote by N.T. Wright captures it. It's a longer quote, so I've split it into two slides And he says this, I was taught that there are basically two sacraments, but I would prefer to say that the whole world is God's sacrament, or at least is full of God's sacramental possibilities. Of course, as soon as you say that, it sounds as though you're halfway to pantheism, and I hope you know that's not where I'm headed, but I do believe that God will be all in all is an eschatological promise. That word eschatological just means a promise about where everything's going, where it's all headed, where all history will conclude, what's at the end of all. It's a promise. I believe God's grace will flood the world. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It's the brooding of the Spirit that will bring forth a new birth. The world that was originally charged with the grandeur of God and still is, according to the seraphim in Isaiah 6, will once again be filled with the very life of God. And that's what we're looking forward to. I think about the parables where Jesus would tell a story and sometimes his meaning would be uh, clear to some and not clear to others. And those phrases that he would say, uh, everyone who has ears, let them hear. Everyone who has eyes, let them see. And this might be something that we could think about as we look about the world around us. As we look at every person, the person sitting next to you, in front of you, every place, every thing, every moment, millisecond of time, and we say, those who have eyes to see or ears to hear, let them hear and see because the glory of God is all around us. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear, every mountaintop and valley, every person place, thing, moment has these sacramental possibilities, as N.T. Wright put it. Third thing that changes with the transfiguration as we meditate on this is how we see ourselves. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and I can't imagine that he doesn't have this transfiguration moment in his mind and Exodus and that story in his mind when he says this. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all 
with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And we all, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. What image is that? The image of the one who has the glory of God. We're being transformed into the likeness of Christ, moment by moment. If our lives belong to Jesus, this is, this is who we are. We are men and women that stand with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God face to face in Jesus Christ. If your life belongs to Jesus, you are being transformed into the same image as Jesus, one degree of glory to another. I mentioned last week um, my wife Christine's accident that was almost five years ago, and um, I referenced a podcast that you could kind of catch up on that story, and I'm not going to repeat what I said last week, this week, but I just want to cut to one moment that um, this is why this text, the transfiguration, has come, become so meaningful to me, and uh, since five years ago in that accident and other ways that kind of added layers to it has become uh, just kind of a personal place of reflection and meditation for me. Uh, my wife, Christine, was in ICU, and um, we, we weren't sure if she was going to live for a few days, and then um, she did, and she was unconscious for about a week and a half, and then she remained in ICU for two weeks, and every time I would go into the ICU room, there was a sense, I mean, palpable, and I, I can't, I had never experienced anything like this, but I would just walk through the threshold of the door and it just suddenly felt like holy. Like, and and even, even not so vague as in the room, but it was almost like where she was, her broken body and bones and swollen face. And uh, there on the bed, it was like this concentration of the glory of God. And every, I felt like I should take off my shoes as I walked into the room because there was something sacramental through the weakness, God was shining through. And it didn't stop the second day, the third day, day number eight. While she was in ICU, there was just this clear sense of this is a holy place. God is here. This is a sacramental kind of moment. And then I found this poem not long after that. It was about a year later, actually, where um, I was just reading through some poetry, and a guy named Scott Cairns is a poet that um, translated this from the original. This is by Irenaeus. He's a second century church father. And here's his translation. He calls this capable flesh. Think of the body, our bodies, your body. The tender flesh itself will be found one day, quite surprisingly, to be capable of receiving and yes, full, capable of embracing the searing energies of God. Go figure, fear not. For even at its beginning, the humble clay received God's art, whereby one part became the eye and another the ear, and yet another this impetuous hand, the hand that's writing this poem. Therefore, the flesh 
is not to be excluded from the wisdom and the power that now and ever animates all things. His life-giving agency is made perfect, we are told, in weakness. Made perfect in the flesh. And that's what we see in Jesus. That's what we see in ourselves. Christine's broken, near-dead body seemed capable of receiving the searing energies of God. In her frail flesh, God's wisdom and power. Every week as we come together and worship, our purpose is to go back to this. To go back to where we get a glimpse of the glory of God through his word written and to the word behind the word, the living word, and then to come to table after the ministry of the word, the ministry of the table. And right here, we walk this out in very fleshly kind of ways, embodied kinds of ways, and what happens at this table is a kind of transfiguration. It's a kind of moment where we recognize the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus. And we offer up our own lives to him. We gather up all of our lives. Just as Jesus gathered up all creations, we come to this table and we come to encounter him in, the, in this sacrament, having gathered up all of our own lives. Paul writes to the church in Rome, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And you do that throughout the week, every day of the week. You also do that in a kind of concentrated, holy moment right here where you offer up, you bring your whole body and everything that your week has entailed. We offer up our bodies and all their strength, all their abilities, all their wonder. We also offer up our bodies that are bruised by the world, that are riddled with sin, that are exhausted by battle. Our lives are joined to his then in this moment. Our wounds are pressed into his wounds wounds in this moment of communion. And all of who we are then gets consecrated with him, made holy by him, and we receive in a very physical way the body and blood of Christ into us, and we are united to him. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but he who lives in me, and the life that I now live by the flesh, I live by the grace of God. Our life united to him. Here at the table, this bread transfigured into something more, this wine into something more, and we run out of words at just about that moment (laughs) to describe what that is, but there is a, a real presence, a kind of concentrated sense of the presence of God in communion as we receive him and his broken body and blood and his victory. So I want to suggest this as you come to communion today, one of the ways that you can kind of take this message today and and, and get really practical with it, as you come to the table, as you come and line up and you receive the bread and the wine today, that you might do that with something on your mind that is specific. Is there a place in your life as you, 
as you think, man, I, I bring this sorrow or this pain. I bring this area of sin that just seems to be besetting. Uh, I bring this way, this conflict in relationship. and I bring it that it might be redeemed or healed. Uh, is it, what is it you bring? What is it you bring that you might uh, press into the wounds of Christ that might be transfigured, that he might be glorified even through our humility and weakness? Come and receive communion today with something specific on your mind that you want to ask the Lord to to meet you right there, heaven and earth merging right here, right now, as we gather for worship and around his table. And as we are in Christ and he is in us, we too then hear the Father's words. And he speaks these words over us. This is my beloved son daughter. You are my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. And you, I'm well pleased because you're in Christ, united to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can hear your words, the words that receive us in all of our sin, our brokenness, our weariness, uh, places that where we lack hope or courage, you take us right there and, and we, we then can be united to you and to your own brokenness. And Lord, would you consecrate us? Would you redeem? Would you shine your holiness, your, your face upon us? May we have Moses' face. May we reflect your glory to the people around us. May we have eyes that see and ears that hear in every person, place, thing, moment. May we see the sacramental possibilities in every one of them. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.